This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off for the week. I'm happy to be joining you again today. Well, what do you think of the new Ontario government directive to combine a stay-at-home order with a plan to get a first dose of COVID vaccine into the arms of 40% of Ontario's adults in the next four weeks? 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 1-866-744-740. The stay-at-home order is designed to keep us out of harm's way while the inoculations continue, soon to be offered to people as young as 18 who live in COVID hot zones, along with employees of large workplaces. Will the daily COVID number start to come down? Will the number of patients with COVID in the intensive care units start to come down? Joining us with the expertise to answer these questions, Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Dr. Uni, welcome back to Fight Back. Uh, thanks a lot for having me again. Hi. Hi. Uh, it's a, it is a pleasure uh, since we know that you are in the know as a result of being on the science advisory table. What led to this combination of strategies to bring down the variant cases? Well, look, in the situation we are right now, we simply don't have enough vaccine doses in people's arms already to uh, be able to control the the, uh, pandemic. So what we need to do now is we need to tremendously decrease contact between people so that we're actually able to to start to bend the curve. This will not be easy because this thing, this new variant, is just so much more transmissible. How resistant, and I don't know if that's a fair way to phrase the question, but how resistant has the Premier and the Cabinet Ministers been to heed your advice and the advice of others on the panel? Well, I'm, I'm unable to, uh, to give you an answer, uh, among other reasons. One is that, you know, I'm typically not in the cabinet or only, uh, only rarely so. And uh, Stanley Brown is there. I think we had an ongoing discussion at several levels, including the ministry. And I'm glad now that, uh, you know, the, uh, the signal has been, has been uh, seen and uh, appreciated that we're really right now in a, in a precarious situation. When you say a precarious situation, um, how how desperate is it? Are we able, by taking the measures that were announced yesterday, to start to turn things around? It depends on every single one of us. You know, that's the issue here. Remember, 40% more transmissible. That's right now the uh, story that we have to tackle. 40% more transmissible than uh, the variants that we're all accustomed to from last year. The problem is that during the lockdown that we had in January, these new variants still were growing. Meaning, if we do exactly the same as in January, and every single one of us exactly behaves the same as in January, the new variants will still grow. They will grow less than right now, but they will still grow. So if we want to get this under control, we all just should now go back to the roots, basically, and do what we probably did about a year ago mm-hmm. and really make sure that we don't do anything that is not absolutely essential in terms of indoor activities with other people who are not part of our household. Uh, Dr. Uni, there's a little bit of noise on your line. I don't know if... Um your phone, uh, however, maybe you're holding it, uh, is just, it's not as easy to make out. Oh, is it better like that? Yes, much better like Good. that. Thank okay, you. Super. We just want to hear what you're saying as well as possible. Yeah, um, no, no, for sure. No, you know, I mean, you're right. You bring up a great point. A year ago, when we literally locked down, when everybody was literally staying at home, all the stores were closed. There was no curbside pickup. People were receiving CERB to stay home. You know, we didn't go that far this time. Why, in your estimation, was that 
not the case when arguably it's more serious now? Yeah, you see, I think everybody is really tired. That's certainly challenging. And um, it's it was also, you know, just a society, in, in the society, there was just this phenomenon that people just felt, oh, okay, the vaccines are coming, the weather is uh, getting better, etc. We will just be able to pull it off. Even so, it was completely obvious, you know, already in February, we won't be able to pull this off without the renewed lockdown. So I sounded like a broken record, you know, yeah. uh, in the media, etc., and uh, and uh, here we are now. I think the important part is now to move on, to move forward. The, the point is, there is really light in the, at the end of the tunnel. These vaccines actually work. They work beautifully. We now just need to do the right thing there. We need to make sure that we leverage spring. It's coming. The weather is beautiful. Let's all go out, enjoy ourselves outside, and just do that in a safe way. And then just let's forget about, you know, everything that is indoor activity with other people. If we all just follow that part, and in addition, you know, we now roll out the vaccines in those people who actually need it most in hotspots and in essential workers and their facilities, things will start to change. But we still need a few weeks for this to change. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to hear from you out there as well. What do you think of the new Ontario government directive to combine the stay-at-home order with a plan to get a lot more people vaccinated? And um, among those people are relatively young people, as young as 18. That's what seems to be a little bit vague, uh, Dr. Uni. In terms of these people as young as 18 who are in congregate work settings, who are in high-risk neighborhoods for COVID transmission, how exactly are they going to book slash get their first dose of vaccine? Yeah, we don't know yet how this all will look, or at least I don't know yet. You know, there will be logistical challenges. And um, one of the aspects that we were uh, discussing at the science table is we really reach out into the facilities. This will be important. But we also need to leverage, um, uh, or I would, you know, if I were uh, involved in the logistics, and, you know, I'm obviously not involved in the logistics, Mm -hmm. leverage the, uh, you know, the existing uh, mass vaccination centers, the hospitals, etc., and really just lower yeah, the age cut off for those people who actually uh, qualify, you know, from the neighborhoods that are in hotspots. And then in addition, go into the facilities, the warehouses, the, uh, the uh, manufacturing places, etc., that are um, known to be high risk or are currently in outbreaks. It will probably be a combination of those. This will be challenging, but the, the person who is leading now the efforts home at Tien has a track record, track record of getting things done, which is excellent news for the province. We have a few more minutes here with Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. The case load today of the COVID-19, primarily the variants, is just under 3,300, along with 19 related deaths, 525 people in intensive care units. Is it correct in saying that this scenario today is reflective of what was happening two weeks ago? Uh, yes, indeed, it is. So in terms of the caseload, for sure, if you think about uh, the hospitalizations and ICU admissions, you need to add another two to three weeks. So what you see in terms of uh, of ICU admissions and hospitalization is more reminiscent of what happened four to five weeks ago. Based on your expertise, then, um we know that things will get worse before they get better. How much worse would they get based on the numbers? Yeah, well, right now, you know, when we when we think about what's happening, if the if we all do the right thing and if the uh, stay-at-home order lockdown measures actually kick in appropriately, means this is uh, kicking in stronger than in January then numbers would start to, uh, you know, be uh, stable or perhaps go down a bit uh, in about eight to ten days. After that, you still need to be aware of that we then have a delay of two to three weeks until we perhaps start to see that curve start to flatten for hospital admissions and then for ICU admissions. That's the challenge. So it really, right now, when you think about that, we're talking about the tough periods of at least four, five, 
perhaps six weeks. It also will depend on how long people who are severely ill will stay on the intensive care unit. We know that length of stay is longer than before. So people, you know, tend to be um, younger right now. They tend to be more severely ill and therefore they actually also uh, spend more time on the ICU. I know that uh, those of you on the science advisory table are crunching the numbers. You come up with best case scenarios, worst case scenarios. Uh, Dr. Staney Brown presents them every so often. A few weeks back, um, I remember Dr. Brown saying that a best case scenario for Ontario the first week of April would be 2,000 cases a day. A worst-case scenario would be 8,000 cases a day. Is it possible before the newly announced stay-at-home order and the, and, and the increase in inoculations get going, is it possible we could see upwards of 8,000 cases a day in the next week before things turn around? Yeah, let me just have a look, you know, at, at the dashboard where we are right now. Oh. When I, you know, I'm, I'm just actually opening it. What you, what you need to be aware of is that these new variants right now double their daily numbers um, roughly every 11 days. So it really, it will now depend on what's, what's actually going on right now. So we are right now uh, roughly at 3,300 cases. Um, and uh, quite a lot of those now, probably above 75% now, are the new variants. And it's uh, most likely, you know, that we reach something in the area right now of five to 6,000 cases, probably in about uh, 11 days or so. Yeah. yeah, you need to let that sink in, right? Because that's um, now we're, we're getting into this, these variants they're not multiplying exponentially, but they're they're going straight up when you look at a graph almost. Oh, I mean, they're growing exponentially. That's what you're seeing. That's exponential growth. You know, um, that, that's the point that the daily numbers every day on average, they increase. And that's the sign of exponential growth. I know you have to leave us now, Dr. Uni. Um, any thoughts, uh, any any encouragement or, or positives uh, that you can pass along? Right now, we are really in a, in a relatively challenging situation, but we have now a vaccine rollout that is accelerating. We move the vaccines into the right places to the right people, and this in itself will help us tremendously. We just need a little bit of time for that. And the other part really is, don't forget that part Outside is considerably safer than inside. So meaning right now in the situation we're in, we all can still enjoy ourselves outside. We just need to stay away two meters from others. Everything that's happening now will happen for a few more weeks. The summer will be much, 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 much better. And this is not just a tokenism. This is for, for real. So we just need to have a little bit more patience. It's tough. It's challenging. This opponent is much, much stronger than the original one. But we just need to to stand together and do it. And we can do that. We can. You're absolutely right. Thank you for your time, Dr. Uni. Thanks a lot for having me. Good luck and stay safe. Uh, Yes, stay safe, you too. Epidemiologist Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Jane, for Libby, I want to hear from you as well. Uh, what do you think? What do you think of the new plan, the stay-at-home order, uh, along with the plan to get more vaccine into the arms of Ontario adults? 40% of Ontario adults, that is the goal over the next four weeks. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's go to Melanie in High Park. Hi, Melanie. Hi, uh, well, I call myself a Hyde Park observer. It's not that I, I'm constantly out there, but uh, my windows from my front of my home, they face Hyde Park. Right, I'm right beside it. And I'm shocked how many young people, and I mean, this is on a daily basis for the last few months, they're walking in front of my house to go into Hyde Park, and they are breathing and shouting in each other's face. None of them are masked. And I'm really concerned, really concerned for their health. And I'm in shock. They have absolutely... 
no no compunction to to realize what they're doing. Even today, I counted over 50 people just in each other's face, and, and it really, really, really scared me for them, for their health, for their well-being. But the other thing is that I went to Cloverdale Mall last week, and they're telling us to get vaccinated. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get vaccinated. Um, closed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, closed. Uh, uh, St. Joseph's closed till three at three p.m. If this is such a drastic emergency, which it is, why are we not keeping them open at least till eleven o'clock? Like some of the grocery stores used to be open, twenty-four hours a day if we need to be to get people vaccinated. How can we get vaccinated if all these places are closed? They're not available to us. And the third suggestion I have for our medical. Uh, people in our medical association is we have a lot of doctors. My niece's wife is from Israel, and she can't get a job because she can't get validated here. I mean, she has to go through all these licenses. These people were experienced in their home countries in Eastern Europe, uh, in Israel, in South America. They could be put to work to relieve the staff from all the... Uh, they're tired. They're worn out. Sure. Let's give them a break. Let's allow them to do something. Okay, Melanie, I'm going to let you go because I want I want to get Dr. Alon Vaisman on the line here, and I thank you for your call. Uh, Dr. Vaisman is an epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and we're lucky enough to have him here as a regular on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Dr. Vaisman, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I'd like to hear what you think uh, about the Premier's announcement, which is now in effect for the stay-at-home order and this plan to get uh, more vaccine into more at-risk people. Yeah, on both fronts, it was very good news to hear because the way the cases were trending upwards over the last few weeks indicated that something drastic needed to be done in order for the something, you know, something to had to give. The, the cases were going rapidly rising. The ICU admissions were rapidly rising. So a lockdown order was absolutely necessary to help curb that. Unfortunately, we won't see the effects of that lockdown order for several weeks, as is the case often with these things uh, because of the incubation time of the virus. And in terms of the vaccination, I think it's, it's important that they recognize that there are certain high-risk groups that are of the lower age group that should be vaccinated in a prioritized fashion because they will be the ones who continue to work even during a lockdown. So it was good, good news all around on those two fronts. A lot of experts are saying the premier got it right this time, but he's done the right thing too late. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, when you think of, when you look back to the middle of March, uh, about the third week of March, when you saw the cases trending in the wrong direction, Seeing those numbers, plus knowing where the variants were going to, what direction they're going in, you know, we could have anticipated, and, and it was anticipated, as you mentioned, by the science table, that cases are going to rise this rapidly. So it would have been beneficial to have made some of these changes earlier on to prevent the current state, which is a very, very severe increase in ICU admissions, particularly. 525 people in the ICUs uh, at this moment. What does that mean for those of us who are not completely familiar with uh, how much capacity there actually is. What, where does that number put us on the scale? So the, the trajectory and the current values that we're looking at are higher than it's ever been during the pandemic in the last 12 months, which means that the burden on the frontline staff, on the resources is all extremely high. In terms of an actual capacity, even when you see a number on a page that reflects what the current capacity is, when ICU beds are going to be needed, hospitals can make extra capacity, as we're seeing in Sunnybrook with um, the field hospital being set up but not being used quite yet. So it may be misleading to look at a percentage or a total capacity. The most important thing to look at is how much, how many patients are out there. And we've, we've gone way beyond what we've previously had. So, you know, you can use extra spaces in hospitals, spaces that you're not generally using for ICU space. But it just reflects the fact that the, the hospitals are bursting at the seams and doing everything they possibly can to look after patients who are critically ill. What is it about this variant, and it's particularly the B117 that originated in the UK, what is it about it that is taking down uh, people who have been healthy until they've contracted the virus? We don't know exactly yet. We don't exactly yet know why this specific variant or variants in general that we're seeing over the last three months are more deadly and are more infectious. It could be something related to the fact that it can escape the immune system, that the immune system, when initially seeing the virus, doesn't have as good response compared to the previous variants that were in Canada. But in any event, we're seeing now the young people that are much more affected than we had seen in the past 
Of course, a certain degree of that is the fact that, L, that the people who are older are now more likely to be vaccinated, but still the number of young people who are affected compared to previous is still quite, quite a significant number. And it was actually observed even before it was seen in Ontario. The same observation was seen in Europe and other parts of the world where these variants were more common. Uh, Dr. Uni was saying that at the moment there is not a, a concrete plan um, on how people 18 and over who are in high-risk areas or in congregate work settings are going to get their vaccines. Um, in terms of organizing that and rolling it out, um, we would be left to speculate. We haven't been given any timelines. Uh, the teachers in hot zones are being promised their first dose next week. How... What... It, this is good news for the school system, regardless of whether the the cases are making their way from the community into the schools or whether the cases are spreading within the schools. Yep, it's a good idea to have those people who are most likely to come in contact with large groups of people to be vaccinated. In the case of children, as you said, it could be a two-way kind of transmission, probably more likely that the community transmission occurs uh, and leads to cases in the schools rather than the other way around. But because teachers are coming in contact with large numbers of young people, students, children, then it makes sense to have those people vaccinated as soon as possible to not only protect themselves, but protect those that they come in contact with as well. And and what do you think? I mean, at the moment, we're about to go into the postponed March break, the spring break next week. And then after that, we'll see about um, whether Peel and Toronto schools go back to in-person learning. Same with Wellington, uh, Dufferin and Guelph, that area. There continues to be controversy as to whether schools are safe, not safe, you know, the benefits of the, of mental health, kids being together versus spreading of the variants. What is your perspective on that once the break is over? I think the position that most people have taken on that is that schools should be the very last thing that you close down. So in terms of the other economic activity going on in the province, those are the things that you should be shutting down wherever possible before shutting down schools, because schools provide such a valuable resource, such a valuable um, assistance for kids in their education, their mental health. So if you're in a position where everything is closed and still cases are rising, then resuming schools uh, probably isn't a good idea because you're likely going to see increased transmission among them and transmission to the teachers and all the adults that are participating in the care of those children. But if you see cases are trending downward on that, in that area, or by, by, that point, by that point where the March break is over, then it might make sense to open schools, but, but it would make sense to be the first thing you open rather than, you know, after several other things. Based on the numbers we're looking at now, it seems unlikely that that'll be the case, though. Okay, interesting. Let's go to Peter in Thornhill. Peter, go ahead. You're on Fight Back. Hi. Uh, uh, okay, quick comment, uh, hopefully quick. I've noticed for nine months now, uh, actually almost uh, close, yeah, at least nine months, that the teenagers... Uh, young adults and teenagers and even younger kids are all congregating in mass, uh, in groups, in the parks, in the skateboarding parks, basketball courts, on the street, with no masks. Um, they mostly, from what I understand, are asymptomatic. So they um, are the carriers and the spreaders. They go home. They don't know they have uh, the COVID. They, they spread it to their parents. And then it goes through the community. So the government's worried about closing, uh, vaccinating 80-year-old people in nursing homes and closing down stores, which are mostly frequented by adults who are wearing masks. They completely miss the boat. They're missing the boat all the way through. They're sitting in their, the experts are sitting in their ivory towers in their offices, not having a clue what's going on okay. out there in the community, okay. just like the other lady said. I drove by several parks uh, this week. I get your point, oh. Peter. I get your point. I'm going to let you go and get Dr. Vaisman to comment. Is there something missing from this stay-at-home strategy, which um, would which would reflect the concerns that our caller has? I think those are important points that the caller made regarding congregation and outside areas. And if you look at the lockdown orders, they did actually specifically mention that there are certain outside activities should be actually allowed and encouraged. Because lockdowns have, are a double-edged sword. In one sense, you are reducing transmission in doors and stores and other areas. But on the other hand, um, if you don't allow people to do these kinds of activities, they might. these kinds of activities can go underground. People will congregate in their homes. So you, unfortunately, it's more of a risk reduction strategy where you must allow people, especially now with the weather being nicer, you, you must allow people to be outside 
and to meet. Of course, there should be limitations to that. People should not be, you know, right on top of each other. People should be wearing masks when they're very close to one another outside. And, uh, you know, people shouldn't be symptomatic when they're doing that. They shouldn't be in very large groups either. But you must allow people to do these kinds of activities within reason, within the safe, safe confines. Otherwise, these activities are going to go on without you knowing it inside homes. Epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman, thank you for your time. Always interesting. Thank you again for having me. Dr. Vaisman is an infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. I'm Jane for Libby, and she is off this week. It's great to be with you here as always. Coming up next on Fight Back, how many Americans living in Canada are crossing the border to get a COVID vaccine faster? More than you might think. That is coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. It's a case of jumping the COVID-19 vaccine queue, but not here in Canada. We're talking about dual Canadian-American citizens who are crossing the border to the U.S. to get inoculated. Some are justifying it as freeing up a spot for others to get their shot quicker here at home. They also say they can get fully vaccinated much quicker in the U.S. than in Canada, where the wait between the first and second doses is four months. Epidemiologists like Dr. Colin Furness, who's a regular here on Fight Back, say that he doesn't see this. Dr. Furness says he doesn't see this as being a moral or ethical issue as long as these individuals drive to where the vaccine is and not get on jets and fly there. To comment on this phenomenon, I'm joined by Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc. Marty, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How common is this scenario? Well, it's interesting. You talk about the dual citizenship. So that may be just to go across the border to a, a Detroit or, or a Buffalo to get it. But the, the real common phenomenon now is non-U.S. residents, Canadians who are traveling south to the Floridas, the Arizonas, the Palm Springs of the world, and getting the second vaccine after they had the first in Canada. Nothing to do with being a citizen of the U.S., just taking advantage of the fact that you can get your vaccines down there and get them very quickly. Interesting. So at the beginning of uh, the vaccine rollout, when they were giving out the vaccines before they were here in Canada, in the U.S., you had snowbirds who were already down there for the winter taking advantage of it. Now you have the phenomenon where the snowbirds may have been here or individuals may have been here, got their first shot, and you're saying they're heading south to get their second shot. That's correct. I'd call it three ways. You have the November crowd that there was no vaccine then. They just went because they wanted to bubble down south versus bubble in cold Canada. Then in January, when the vaccine became available and was being allowed for non-residents and snowbirds who did own property, you got a whole new influx of people. And then what you're getting now in the last two weeks is people who chose not to go down at all saying, I'm not waiting four months for my second shot. So you know what? I'm going to go down there, book the appointment. I can get it right away and head right back. I'll be at quarantine 14 days when I get back. And and what do you think about that particular situation? Are, are you good with the fact that as long as they drive to where, you know, they're not potentially spreading the virus or picking up the virus? Yeah, to be honest with you, my thoughts always from day one was not the airliner, although I do know a lot of the uh, epidemiologists are, are, are questioning that. My one was always access to hospital for the things that can go wrong in any given year with travel and travel insurance, like heart attack, stroke, or slip and fall. So I don't have a problem with going down there. My problem was staying down there for the five months and then getting sick. Well, if you're going down now just for the second vaccine, you could virtually be in and out in getting ooh, a day or two. So that's what's going on right now. Right. But something could happen to you in that day or two as well. I mean, that's why we get insurance, right? You got it. And no one has a crystal ball. You're right. They, they may need it. And that's why they have to go with insurance. But what I'm hearing, and this is interesting, our ICUs in Canada are filled to capacity. And that's why we're in a lockdown like we are right now. Mm-hmm. But down in Florida, as an example, that hasn't truly come to fruition yet with the ICUs and the hospitals being filled to capacity. So it's kind of an interesting thought when you think about it. Well, right. And I wonder if that's as uh, as a result of having healthcare that you need to pay for. You have people down there who might get a bad case of COVID, but can't afford to go to a hospital and then p- potentially end up dying at home. 
That's true. Absolutely. 100%. So that's a bit of a concern, but I don't see where they're having issues getting into hospitals now. And I really thought that was going to be a major stumbling block back in November. Well, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, uh, if people are following the rules and they are making their way down to the United States to get this second shot, uh, what are you recommending for them in terms of insurance or, or, or would you discourage this behavior altogether? I, I was very much discouraging it prior, but I must tell you now with the slow rollout here and the four-month waiting period, which means you're looking at, at appointments now at the end of July for your second shot, if someone, first of all, if someone says they want to go, I, I can only give them so much advice. I do have to make sure they have the proper insurance, including COVID, okay? Because right now, one shot doesn't necessarily prevent you from coming down with COVID when you go down there. So first and foremost, you have to have the proper insurance and then it's up to you. You know, everybody's an adult now and they've got to make their decisions. I'm speaking with Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc. I'd like to get uh, your opinion on uh, the future of travel, uh, when we will be able to travel. What do you think uh, when in terms of when most of us get our two doses of vaccine, how long after that do you think we'll be able to go, say, on a Caribbean vacation, go to the, go to Florida, go to Europe? What are your thoughts on that? I think Europe and international is summer of 2022. I see nothing this year at all with the Italy and the Frances of the world. They're both in lockdown situations right now. There is no way you're going to end up being there this summer. The Caribbean and places like that, once flights do begin again on May 1st, I guess that is an option. And the U.S. has and always has been an option, albeit the border still closed. We'll probably be again closed for another 30 days each and every time. They just extend, extend, extend. And as long as we have that three-day hotel quarantine and the 14-day quarantine, even though you've had both vaccines, even though you have negative COVID tests going and coming, there just doesn't seem to be any opening at all for travel until next year at best. Next year, even for the Caribbean. Yeah, that's what I'm I, I'm seeing. I don't see anybody going to the Caribbean in, in July or August. So your ho- earliest hope for snowbirds is next November, for travelers Christmas season next year, and then hopefully summer of 2022 for your international trips, Italy, France, anywhere in Europe at that point. What about proof of vaccination or a COVID-19 vaccine passport that's been talked about? Uh, your thoughts on whether that will be mandatory for travelers, uh, even I, just going back and forth over the border by car? Yeah, I think it's really important that it's going to be put into place now, whether morally and ethically this is going to fly is another question. But from a travel perspective, Countries will and probably will demand that you do provide proof of both vaccinations. Right now, nobody is recognizing vaccines, either government or insurance companies. So at this point, it doesn't do anything for you. But when travel does open up again, there will definitely be countries that say you have to show proof of vaccination in order to get into our country. And I think that's where it will be. Will it extend to cinemas and pubs and sporting attractions? That's where you open up a lot of gray area as to who got the vaccines and who didn't get them. Interesting. The pharmacist who gave me my AstraZeneca vaccine on Sunday, he gave us, um, you know, a wallet size certificate of our first dose. And he said, well, you, you, you'll want to put that in your passport. And I thought, here we go, right? This is the beginnings of uh, having to show proof of vaccine to travel. Yeah, there's no doubt it's going to be a precursor to the vaccine passport as we know it, whether it be on your phone or whether it be a document of some sort. And then that will lead to the amber, red and green lights traffic system that uh, England's talking about. Something will come out of this. There will be no doubt you're going to have to get some recognition, the fact that you had both vaccines. This has obviously been a challenging time for you, Martin, um, in in the travel business. Uh, how How are you managing personally and professionally? No doubt. Our sales are down well over 75%, but all I can hope and dream is that it will come back, pent-up demand will be bigger and better than ever, and travel in the year 2022, I think, will be numbers that we've never seen before. So I have to believe in that at this point and, and hope that we all get vaccinated and we all get back to traveling again. Yes, we're all dreaming of travel again one day. Uh, yeah. Thanks for your time. Always nice to chat. 
Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, Inc. Jane for Libby. And still to come, should Canada have a basic income program? Let me give you the phone numbers. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. A basic income program. One liberal MP thinks so. And he'll tell us about his plan next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Remember, tomorrow is Free For All Friday, so if you didn't get through during the week, make sure you grab a line tomorrow, Free For All Friday. It's your show, your opinions on what is happening in the news. Thousands of federal liberals will gather online tonight for the start of a three-day national convention. Among those in attendance, Liberal MP for Beaches East York, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and Zoomer Media friend Charles Bird, Managing Principal at Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. Hello to both of you. Hi there. Hey, and for new listeners to fight back, Charles was actually a member of our Tuesday strategy panel for a couple of years, only recently taking a break because of a scheduling conflict. Charles, it's so nice to hear your voice again. Great to talk to you, Jane. (laughs) I understand uh, from producer Zeev, this is your 17th year at this liberal convention. Yeah, dating back to 1984, which I think was the year Nate was born. So, uh, no, I, I was just a young man at the time, maybe three or four years old. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, exciting to have uh, everyone gathering together, albeit virtually. Um, it should be a very, very interesting uh, experiment, given that we have over 5,000 registered delegates, um, about 60% of whom are attending their first convention. Uh, obviously, policy is the key theme uh, to this convention, we won't be uh, we won't be debating the existence of climate change and whether it's real. But I can report that there have been over six thousand individual contributions to the policy process, including uh, some really interesting stuff on long term care and old age security. You got that shot in quickly at Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. <laughs> oh, was that who said? Oh, what? <laughs> uh, th- now this is the largest convention, right, Charles, in the history of the Liberal Party. Close to it. I know the um, the 2006 Liberal leadership in Montreal that elected Stéphane Dion was pretty close, but I think this one's the biggest of all. Now, you did mention a few of the agenda items. We'll go over to Nathaniel Erskine-Smith now. Welcome to Fight Back. Great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This basic income plan, tell us about your proposal. So this isn't a proposal that simply comes from me. This is mm-hmm. a proposal that originated in a number of different quarters, including our caucus. So I was one of six members at the time who put together a resolution that really called for a social safety net that leaves nobody behind and a Canadian basic income. But we also saw calls from the Seniors Liberal Commission. We've seen calls from our Young Liberals of Canada. We've seen calls out of the Liberal Party of BC and the Liberal Party of Ontario. So there have been many calls across the country and from different quarters to call for reinventing our social safety net. We we obviously have lived through a crisis where our social safety net wasn't fit for purpose. We saw millions, over 8 million Canadians who accessed the CERB. We spent over $80 billion between the CERB and EI enhancements, another $13 billion on the CRB, which was an extension of the CERB. We know the simplicity of the CERB was instrumental in getting the help that people needed in this crisis. And we know that we need a stronger social safety net going forward so that when we do meet another crisis, either a national crisis, a provincial crisis, or simply a crisis in an, in an individual's life, our social safety net is such that it, leaves, it doesn't leave someone behind. Critics might say um, that this would promote people taking federal money without looking for work. That's what a conservative would say to you. What is your response to that? Well, not all conservatives think in this way. Certainly okay. former conservative Hugh Siegel has been at the forefront of pushing for this policy. We also saw Brian Mulroney, former Prime Minister of the Conservative Party earlier this year, say Hugh Siegel's proposal should be taken seriously on on this front. So I'd say there are conservative voices in this movement that are incredibly supportive. I would also say there is an overwhelming amount of evidence, not only here in Canada with past experiments in Dauphin, Manitoba, but also around the world, 
And the PBO itself, they issued a report yesterday, an update on costing. And one real highlight for me, at least, was dispelling this myth that there's this strong disincentive to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really, the, we, we know that there isn't. We have a Canada Child Benefit uh, in Canada already. It is means-tested. The more you earn, the less you get. But it is clawed back in a gradual way, such that there is always an incentive to earn another dollar. And so it's, it's a negligible effect in, in terms of labor force participation. There was also, uh, Charles, maybe you can speak to this, Nathaniel, I'm sure you can as well. There was a pilot project in Ontario launched by then Liberal Premier Kathleen Wynne. Which, was there ever. Yes. It was a highly successful pilot project. I think it was um, operating in Hamilton, Ontario, Lindsay, Ontario, Lindsay, yeah. and, and one other location. And it really dispelled a lot of the myths that you hear about such programs, which is, oh, it's a disincentive not to work and it comes with, you know, tickets to two to club med at taxpayer expense. I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. And the, the truth is that the, um, the current conservative government in Ontario saw fit to cancel the program. And a lot of people who've been doing tremendously well and have made great strides and who, in fact, had found work for themselves in a lot of instances suddenly found themselves cut off and um, most unfortunate. But yes, you're absolutely right, Janet. It was, a, it was a very successful pilot project, and it's just a shame that it wasn't allowed to uh, continue. So is it fair to say, Nathaniel, that human nature would be that we like to be productive, most of us, we like to work, and being given a basic income provides us the luxury of finding that work in the interim? That's right. Fine. There's a, whether it is going back to school, and we saw this, by the way, in the Dauphin experiment to go back, the two categories where there was a drop in labor force participation, it was young men who were going to school, which is a net positive, And it was women because at the time we didn't have the maternity benefits that we now do that were staying home with very young children. Also, a net positive. And as a result, we actually have since then developed maternity leave and parental leave policies in a serious way. So we, we know that we can dispel that myth, but we also know that the individuals are best placed to make decisions in their own lives. And so when it comes to the, and there's a, a, a significant amount of evidence on this front too, when, when you give someone in need another dollar, they spend it on necessities, food, clothing, shelter, and additional education, reskilling opportunities, individuals are going to be able to be best placed to make these decisions for themselves. And so this is this policy really is about dignity and bringing people out of poverty, but it also is about individual autonomy and recognizing that individuals are best suited to make these choices for themselves. In terms of um, efficiency, uh, would a basic income plan replace and override and become sort of all-encompassing of employment insurance, CERB, of course, uh, most recently, um, would it become the main way of providing funds to Canadians who are not working or are between jobs? Not necessarily. So, and this gets to the resolution and the call for greater work. We've seen significant work from the Parliamentary Budget Office, but putting finance to work on this would, I think, be a significant step forward. You, You could imagine a situation where We do have some programs that could very easily be collapsed into uh, basic income. You have the GST tax credit, the Canada Workers Benefit is two smaller examples, the Canada Employment Amount, which is $2.5-some-odd billion that could be rolled in. Employment insurance is obviously a separate scheme where people are specifically paying into it. It's not coming from the general treasury. You could imagine a situation where we set a floor that no one will fall below, and then the insurance scheme would kick in over and above that, where people are then contributing to it. There are different ways of, of formulating this idea of a basic income. I think the call from caucus and the call beyond is to say, we recognize that there is a problem here. Too many people are, are left behind, and there are too many gaps in our social safety net. And we need to make sure that we build upon the significant supports we do have through the Canada Child Benefit, the Guaranteed Income Supplement, and OAS, which are effective basic incomes for seniors. That We need to build upon these existing programs to ensure nobody's left behind. And what do you say to people who who would be critical and say we've spent so much money already during the pandemic to take care of Canadians? Can we really afford to do this? There's a huge cost to poverty, number one. Two, we are already in the game of supporting individuals. We, you know, for reference, we spend $25 billion on the Canada Child Benefit. We spend over $55 billion on seniors' benefits. We spend only $2 billion on a Canada Workers' Benefit. And as a result, 
the largest poverty rate that we have in this country among demographics is the working poor, that working age category. They they are the missing middle, and we need to improve our basic income supports to ensure that we address that fact. Now, in terms of where we find additional revenue sources and where we find the money to pay for a significant new outlay to support Canadians in need, this is, again, one of the calls of the resolution is to say some federal supports can obviously be streamlined. There are obviously conversations to be had with provinces because provinces are certainly providing social assistance and where there are direct cash transfers to individuals from provinces, those could potentially be rolled into a basic income as well. And, and we need to have this national conversation as between levels of government to see if we can make this work because it, it really is an idea whose time has come. Speaking of national conversations, and certainly if you would like to comment on this idea of basic uh, basic income plan for Canada, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm speaking with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, Liberal MP for Beaches East York, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal at Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. When we speak about national conversations, Charles, certainly long-term care uh, and basic needs, national standards. Where is this conversation right now and where will we get to over the course of this Liberal Convention? Well, this is, um, this is one of the more important policy resolutions that will come before the Convention, in fact, tomorrow. And um, it goes directly to the question of national standards around person uh, catered care. And that, that includes things like staffing levels and long-term care facilities, qualifications for staff, licensing standards. It also means more accountability through random inspections and uh, the publication of annual reports. And the, the resolution on long-term care actually goes further than that and calls on the federal government to introduce legislation to make um, long-term care an insured sec- uh, service. And so this is um, this is pretty substantial stuff, and it's obviously near and dear to the hearts of of liberals. I think the obviously the pandemic has had a tremendous impression on people, not always in the best possible way, but it's also changed the thinking of a lot of people as to what our priorities should be, and it's exposed a lot of things that really needed to come to light a lot sooner. And long-term care facilities is near the top of that list and doing better by our senior citizens is really something that we take very, very seriously as liberals. And um, hopefully this, the, the policy discussion this weekend will reflect that. Nathaniel, how uh, is the approach to the national standards around long-term care for the liberals different from what NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is offering in terms uh, of a similar kind of plan in terms of long-term care standards, as well as ridding long-term care of for-profit by, I believe it's 2030. We in the throne speech committed to national standards for long-term care. Charles is absolutely right. One Another lesson we learned in this pandemic, a problem that pre-existed the pandemic but has been exacerbated by it, is that not enough seniors in this country are living in dignity in a way that they ought to. And there are staffing levels that need to be addressed. There are building design issues that need to be addressed. There are really smart individuals in this country, like Dr. Samir Sinha, who are seized with this question and will be helping to push this conversation forward. In terms of where it differs, I think probably we appreciate jurisdiction slightly differently and maybe have a better appreciation for provincial jurisdiction insofar as the federal government can take a leadership role, but we are going to have to work hand-in-hand with provinces to make this happen. And in terms of the specific question of for-profit and not-for-profit care. Obviously, we've seen worse outcomes in for-profit facilities, Mm -hmm. but having spoken to Dr. Samirson and put the same question to him, he said it's not so easy, and the real focus, the starting focus, should be on specific staffing and other standards that everyone ought to meet, and then resourcing for-profit and not-for-profit to ensure that they can meet those standards, because we can't so easily snap our fingers and move to a not-for-profit system. Okay. Uh, We have a caller who wants to get in here. Pat in Toronto, go ahead. We just have a few minutes left. Yes, I have debated this with Mr. Siegel. The issue is that it is a very slippery slope. And if there's one thing that I think we should do, which is follow through on what Kathleen Wynne wanted to do, which was to dramatically increase the CPP cost. 
Because what happens otherwise is when people get old, and it doesn't happen in all families, the money that the parent or that the elderly had is put in the hands of the younger group, and then they can say, well, we have no money, therefore government has to pay everything for, for the old person. If we increase the CPP, that money can't be taken away, and then that money is available. It's a slippery slope out there. You know, I mean, it all sounds great in theory, but there are a number of people who will know how to work the system, so to speak. Uh, Charles, can you respond to uh, Pat's concerns around the basic income plan? Well, the first thing I would say is it was, in fact, former Premier Wynne who introduced the basic income pilot program and was a great believer in it and delivered on a pilot program which was highly effective and people-oriented and which produced very meaningful and direct results. On CPP, I mean, that's an ongoing, that's an ongoing discussion. Obviously, it's a major, major uh, area of debate and, uh, dare I say, contention. It's something that um, we will continue to work through. Um, personally, I think there probably is room for uh, an increase in um, CPP premiums. But, of course, I'm not an elected official, so I'll defer to Nate for the uh, official Well, program. on that point, so I'd say two things. One is we did increase CPP. We, Minister Morneau, one of his first acts when, when we were first elected in 2015 was to sit down with the provinces, and he quickly hammered out, I think, uh, an a matter that wasn't fully appreciated and still probably isn't based on the question, we, we did hammer out a significant CPP increase with the provinces that is that is going to continue to be significant in, you know, not current retirees' lives, but in future retirees' lives. The second thing I would say is we already have a basic income system for seniors. So if the concern is that seniors are going to somehow transfer a- assets and wealth to a younger generation to make it seem, or, or make it seem like they don't have... Assets, I mean, it, it misunderstands twofold. One, we already have a basic income system for seniors through GIS and OAS. But two, it's based on income. You can't transfer away your income. So it's not based on wealth. It's based on income. We have a minute left here. I'd like to get uh, both of your takes on how big of a role a potential federal election is going to play in the Liberal Convention. Charles? Um, well, I mean... We're adding an extra day to the convention to get ourselves ready as a party for an election that could be on us very quickly. I mean, it's a minority parliament situation. There is no telling uh, when um, a vote of confidence might be held. Also, you know, the Conservatives, I think, demonstrated themselves to be quite obstinate in terms of gumming up the works of parliament. And there may come a point where parliament just doesn't function the way it needs to, especially as we try to you know, combat the pandemic. And so I think it behooves any party to be ready for an election. And we'll be devoting a lot of time to election readiness, whether it's the spring or the fall or into next year. Nathaniel? First, it's important to note, no one in the Liberal Party wants an election until it's safe to conduct one. So we have to be ready in the event there is one because we don't have a majority. We don't control that decision in and of ourselves, but we do not want an election until it is safe to do so. The second thing that I think is critical, not only everything Charles said about election readiness, but two, it's also really important for the Liberal membership. Our politics should be about ideas, and this is an opportunity for the Liberal membership to identify ideas and priorities that they want the, the government and the party to pursue heading into the next election. And if we don't see a basic income, certainly there's going to be a call from the from the membership to say we want to significantly increase income supports and strengthen our social safety net. Very good. Thank you both for your perspectives today. Thanks, Thank you. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith is Liberal MP for Beaches East York and Charles Bird, Managing Principal at Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Jane for Libby, tomorrow it's Free for All Friday. I'll talk with you then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.